Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 17th of April, 2013, and Elliot Washer and Charlie Majowski are here. Welcome to both of you. Nice to be here. Good to be here, yes. We made it. Thanks so much. Yes, you've made it. Charlie <laughs> is coming in through telephone. And so there might be a slight delay when we hear him speak, but uh, let me know, audience, if everything works out okay. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, thanks to Blackboard Collaborate for support. We have a great year of virtual conferences going on. Uh, these are all free. They are terrific supporters. The School Leadership Summit was in March, and that was supported by PCAL. There are recordings, keynotes, everything up live, it's, er, um, up available for free at schoolleadershipsummit.com. Coming up at ISTE, we have our fringe event, the parallel event that takes place at ISTE called ISTE Unplugged that starts with the all-day unconference called Hack Education. So if you're going to ISTE, please do join us. It is free. Then this summer, we have our STEMx conference, uh, worldwide conference on STEM education, the Future of Libraries conference uh, this fall and the Global Education Conference in November. These are terrific events. We have about 100,000 attendees. They're all free, and please feel free to join us for any of them. Go to web20labs.com for more information. Coming up on the interview series tomorrow at an earlier time, Posse Salberg and Vivian Stewart are going to talk to us about uh, global lessons in education. Uh, Posse's book was called Finished Lessons and is fairly well known, and he coined the germ phrase, the global education reform movement phrase that's been such a part of our discussions here. Uh, that is a joint um, project with the Asia Society, that webinar tomorrow. Then next week, Jim Popham is going to talk about mismeasurement and the truth about testing. Uh, Andreas Schleicher uh, from the OECD on what we can learn about learning from data. John Hunter on his World Peace Program. Uh, Peter Gray on Free to Learn. Uh, lots more coming up there that should be fun. Um, Matt Hearn uh, had a, the wrong time yesterday and did not show up for his session on de-schooling, so we're rescheduling that and uh, it should be up shortly. If you've missed any of the sessions, they are all recorded. They're in full Blackboard Collaborate form and an MP3. Uh, Madeline Levine talked to us about childhood. John Hattie on his meta-meta study on education. Uh, He's at the University of Melbourne, so interesting. Michael Fullen, Yang Zhao um, from the School Leadership Summit, Adam Bessie um, before that. Hopefully something up there that's interesting, worth your time to listen to. This is a chance for those in the live studio audience to tell us where they're participating from. Look for the star to the left of the map. Click on it twice and then click on the map. And you're going to be very surprised to hear that I'm in Agra, India. I've had a great uh, 10 days looking at schools in India that started with a school for children of uh, leprosy colony um, and is including um, Karen Birsetti's school later this week. And um, uh, uh, just been a fascinating look at schooling, and especially in a country that has such a colonial heritage. Uh, we don't have time today to probably talk about all of this. Elliot and Charlie, but so many of the things in your book were so important to me this week as I was reading it. Please feel free to put in the chat uh, time and the temperature where you are. So far, I look like the only non-North American guest, but I know that's not true. 
And as we move forward, again, in the chat, you can uh, indicate where you're participating from. There is a Mighty Bell space for this show. I'll put the link in the chat where I've collected uh, web resources and the like, and you can continue the conversation after the show if you would like to. So we're going to start with a video uh, that Elliot and Charlie have asked me to show. But before we do so, I, I want to ask one quick question that maybe sets the video up a little. Uh, I know I'm deeply immersed in this. Right? Uh, I spend uh, a couple of times a week talking about education at a very thoughtful, philosophical level. But this book preeminently felt like common sense to me. Are you experiencing when other people read this book who are encountering your material for the first time, do they say the same thing? Is it common sense to them? Or is there a process of beginning to understand the message? And I'll, let's start with you, Elliot. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they say that all the time. Uh, they talk about <clears throat> how much it, sense it makes and that it's sensible, and that the, the book um, challenges people to really use their sensibilities in school, um, all of them. Uh, having said that, common sense is something that is uh, pretty complex sometimes, uh, because we still don't have much of it in, in our schools. So, so uh, so I'll stop there. I guess I'll let Charlie chime in. I get that all the time. The other thing they say is, I could have written this book. Glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, do you have a response to that? Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's similar to Elliot's. Uh, many, many friends and colleagues who uh, knew I was uh, writing the book with Elliot uh, and, and participated with me in thinking through much of this often said to me, but this is plain common sense. Why aren't we doing it? And uh, we've really come to the conclusion that uh, it's not so much the people in the schools that don't recognize uh, what needs to be done. It's just the organizational setting in, in which they're working doesn't really conform to what common sense is many times. That the organization doesn't know as well as its people do. Uh, so there is that frustration. Okay, we're going to go to the video now. We'll come back to that, uh, that question of institutions, Charlie, in a minute. Uh, if you're watching the show from an iPad, I don't think you're going to see this video, but I'll put the link in the chat. Um, it, uh, if for any reason the video doesn't show up or doesn't play on your computer, it should, then um, we'll just go through. It's about a four-minute video, and, and you can watch the link later or concurrently uh, while we do so. So here we go. I'm going to launch it now. First in the chat, here's the link for those of you who are iPad bound. And we'll come back in uh, at the end of the time on the video. And if you need to hit play to see the video, um, be sure to do so.
So is anybody seeing the video? Uh, I see it, but I'm, it's not playing. I hit play. I think I can get it to see play. Okay. I hit it. Yeah, no, it's working for me. Hi, my okay. name is Good. Diana. Yeah, there it is. So I hope I didn't cut anybody off in the middle there, but my low internet connection here in India means I couldn't actually see it. But I think the the leader um, should have about played through. Um, Elliot, I want to ask about the, uh, sort of Charlie's comment there at the end, right? And um, here I am in India, and I'm watching sort of highly institutionalized schools. Uniforms, high stakes testing, sort of the, the vestiges of a, a colonial system. And is, is what you're describing and what takes place at big picture schools, do you think a continuation of the sort of secondary thoughtful narrative about education, or does it represent an actual change in our relationship to institutions? Well, it could. Um, it could in the sense that we're calling for uh, a convergence or an integration or, or as we use the word a lot, attention uh, to who students are, what their interests are in and outside of school uh, for credit in authentic ways. That shouldn't be a tall order. Uh, that's what our our students are doing, our youth are doing. Um, they're spending a lot of time at it. 
It's highly productive and engaging. Um, it produces incredible results, um, and it should be paid attention to by adults and communities, organizations, parents, and schools out there. So having to do that seems like a simple switch, and yet the system is so geared towards delivery rather than listening and paying attention to those interests or starting with those interests that it actually becomes quite difficult because of the restrictions and regulations that are in place um, that we all know all too well, those of us in schools and people who are doing this outside of school find it uh, very, very difficult to communicate and connect well, with people inside of schools. Charlie, as I read the book, and we'll get into some of the details in a second here. I'm sorry to dive so deeply right off the bat, but as I read the book, I kept thinking, this would take a lot of time, and it probably would be scary. Do you, do you think that time and fear are common factors for um, not embracing this? Well, it depends on what it is we're asking a school to start embracing. Uh, you mentioned before big picture schools, and, and it is true that we could not have written this book without all of our work in big picture schools. But the book, we think, addresses all schools. We'd like to talk about leaving to learn as being the right of every student in every school. Uh, but that doesn't mean uh, that every student should be out of school in uh, detailed in, uh, internships two or three times a week, two or three days a week, as they often are in some big picture schools, particularly in their junior and senior year. Uh, we offer in the book uh, some kind of easy steps into leaving to learn, some of which many non-big picture schools already pursue. And what we're asking is that schools move along that continuum because at the other end of the continuum of opportunities, uh, travel, uh, entrepreneurial activities, working in clubs, uh, taking a year off college courses, some of those things available to all students really start to uh, pay huge returns. Uh, so. We're really asking that schools begin to stretch themselves, start at the easy end, uh, but stretch themselves. And, and as Elliot said, look at the learning that's going on outside of school. Uh, and, and, and by outside of school, it could be even the clubs. Elliot mentioned before academic credit. Uh, but many times, students participate in clubs in schools after the school day, and that work is not at all connected to what's going on inside of school, nor is it. Uh, awarded academic or graduation credit in many cases. So the disconnects is sometime within the same building. Part of what I really enjoyed about the book was the way in which you helped to understand that disengagement can be both leaving school but also staying in school but just not being engaged. And that often there's a richer story than is told through the sort of big four that are described in that video. And, and as th that um, student mentions in the video, there are these deeper four. 
Charlie or Elliot, do you want to kind of give us a sense of uh, what those deeper issues are and how they impact all students? Charlie, do you want to start? Well, I, actually, I think Elliot is the most passionate about the deeper four, so I was going to defer to him at least. I'll fill in if I can. Um, sure. So, uh, so fitting, not fitting in, and not mattering, and, um, and restrictions, and not recognizing interests and talents. Those are the deeper four. Um, we really spent a lot of time talking with students and staff all over from all schools about, about this. And we talked and even had a symposium on uh, students who left school and, and came back and always found out that it wasn't just one thing about why they left school uh, of the big four that, and that it, it, it wasn't sometimes a major crisis. It was just a kind of more of a straw that broke the camel's back. I just can't do it anymore. And and it comes down to isolation and alienation that that the school when you choose it says you have to fit the school, but the other side of the coin is the school also has to fit you. And that and that's that's part of the bargain. The other part is is that who you are, the development of yourself has to matter to the people in, in the school. What you're saying, how you're feeling, what you're doing, it, it's not just what they want you to do that focuses around student engagement. It's engaging you on the things that interest you and what you want to do and starting there as well. In terms of restrictions, as the book points out with uh, Epstein's yeah. work, students of our, our more and more restricted nowadays than than they've been since since school public education first started and and, it, and it's getting even more restrictive not less uh, not just physical but also narrowly defined content um, and as well as uh, the last thing which is probably the most important about starting with your interests and doing something about that. So the the attention part of this, and I'll just go on for a second or, or two longer, is that students, uh, schools use the word mastery a real lot. Um, in the book, we talk about personal mastery. That's real different than mastering just skills. And personal mastery uh, means that you're committed to what you're doing. Uh, that you know that it's going to be difficult to do something well and that it's going to take a long time. And, and we're not talking about that in the education of our youth. We're not talking also about the attention uh, that's got to be paid to those interests. So you go, I was on Southwest Airlines recently, and the flight attendant got on and said, uh, can we pretend to have your attention for a moment? Well, at least they were being honest in saying that. And, you know, you got to respect that. It was a little bit of a joke, but that's one kind of attention. And I go on United Airlines and they just drill you. The CEO comes on, starts talking about how good they are, uh, how much customer service, customer service. And it's all marketing. 
but it's just words. And then when the flight attendant comes over to me, I says, uh, what would you like? And I say, a cup of black coffee. And they say, how would you like it? I said, I just told you it was black. They're not even paying attention. They're not listening to me. So then we have the snap of your fingers pay attention. Just snap your fingers and everybody should come to attention. But that's not the kind of attention we're talking about. We're talking about attention to be paid to those interests where you have to ask and the students know and the school doesn't. They have to listen for a while. So these are big deals. I, I would only add one item, uh, Steve, one observation uh, that we make in the book, and that is this process of estrangement that takes place between uh, the students and the schools is, is almost where the school is dropping away from the students as opposed to the students dropping out of school, if you will. That uh, what starts out in the early grades as this uh, kind of warm and fuzzy and embracing the whole child uh, turns very, very quickly, whether it's because of the pressure of tests or the pressure of the common core standards or, or whatever, the pressure uh, moves the school to implement restrictions. Uh, the desks go in a row. The, uh, the curriculum is a kind of scope and sequence that every student must pass through. So it's really the schools that move away from their learners. And, and uh, that's why we spent a little time in the book trying to get inside uh, the heads and the hearts of young people and, and capture some of their feelings about this process of estrangement. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's important for us to understand where, what young people are feeling. So I don't know if I'm significantly delayed here. It looks like I might be, so I apologize for that, but um, my internet connection might be weak. Uh, Elliot, it feels like you could write the same book for teachers. Don't they live in sort of a parallel world? Often their needs and aspirations and interests aren't as recognized. Well, um, we did write it for teachers as well. Uh, you're right. This is, a, this is a, you know, the book can be taken as a general call. Uh, to pay attention to who is in front of you. Um, no matter what environment you're really in, and, and teachers uh, do feel uh, that estrangement, as Charlie's pointing out, and they do feel restricted in the, in the ways that they might teach, um, and students are learning that, they, that they're trying to get to. Um, they, they feel restricted in their, in their movements, as well. Um, you know, we have schools that are, are very hands-off environments. And you mentioned uh, Passy Salberg uh, in Finland, which we point out just a little bit, and we could spend a, a lot of time talking about um, that piece, not just about how the teacher professional development part of it, but the part that will allow students to, to uh, manipulate and make things out of textiles and wood and metals and art and spend time doing that and getting good at those things. Um, 
it's all hands off. Don't touch. We know the answer. Uh, all, and the problems that, you, that you're working on outside of school sometimes barely enter the arena only as kind of an extra credit or um, piece because all the time has to be spent or so much of the time has to be spent on, you know, on the standards. Charlie, there's this story in the book, uh, the description of the, a painting of Icarus uh, by Bruegel. And uh, as I read that and thought about it, I thought, is there a degree to which that is intended to be kind of a warning, right? Uh, you know, of course, don't, uh, don't aspire to be too much. Those who, have, who sort of look seriously at the history of education might argue that schools were actually designed to um, kind of minimize those aspirations and bring people into conformity. Is that a part of the story, do you think? Yeah, we we were we were using it a bit differently, uh, Steve, in the sense that, uh, and and of course, as any work of art uh, would have multiple interpretations, uh, we were looking at the, the painting uh, and Auden's poem, which uh, parallels it, as as saying something about uh, again the adults not paying attention uh, to young people, young people who aspire to so much. Uh, and many times uh, they will crash and burn. Uh, but crashing and burning is in fact elemental uh, to learning. Uh, and, and as it is one of those student expectations, well, will I have time to play? Will I have time to try things out? Will I have permission to make mistakes? Will there be someone to help me when I do that? So uh, I think the, the Bruegel painting in, the, in that sense is saying, yes, young people are going to reach beyond their grasp, uh, <laughs> if you will. Uh, but that's all right. Uh, and students want that permission to play. Uh, to try things out, to fail without being punished or even graded. Uh, uh, yeah, and reading so much of the literature on creativity and innovation recently, I'm struck with how many uh, absolutely phenomenal uh, creative people in, in history. Um, I'm thinking of Dyson and the vacuum cleaner, and, and he said, uh, this is version, uh, the one that worked was uh, in the 5200s. He had tried 5100 previous versions of his vacuum cleaner. Well, he, is that uh, 5100 uh, pairs of wings strapped on too close to the sun? Uh, perhaps. That's the way I, I look at that painting, at least one way of looking at it anyway. I knew I was going beyond your interpretation of the book. I, I apologize. I didn't mean to misrepresent that. But y yes, uh, um, oh, no. so interesting. Okay, so I'm wondering if five years ago or ten years ago, your ability to talk about students' expectations of schools would be received in the same way it is now, meaning uh, it feels like we're more open to this sense that students should have expectations, that they are, it's a, it's a service that should be serving their needs. Elliot, has there been a change in, in our willingness to think about what students should expect of schools? Um, I think that there has been. And uh, I think that there always was this underlying expectation, but 
because of the amount of not just information but uh, knowledge that's that can be delivered in a pretty in, in a visual way that becomes hands-on through the internet that the access has changed things so you went to school and school had was kind of cordoned off as academic vocational commercial um, and there was a way to touch stuff in some cases uh, and there was and there was the information was at the school it was also outside of the school and many students left and were brilliant at what they did um, now everybody has access to so much information it's unbelievable so that creates a sense in students and in and in, and and a, a frustration probably in teachers about everybody including the system saying there's so much information access out there and yet this is what you have to know it's almost said in the same breath so so students do have that kind of access outside of school and they are can get those materials and they can form support groups and they have always found adult mentors around it's just that it's it's easier because of the internet so that raises the expectations of students around what school could be um, the same thing actually happened during World War uh, after World War two with the GI Bill when the GIs came back they raised the expectations as students for what colleges should be they actually changed the colleges started the community colleges schools of design schools of architecture schools of performance all started after World War two and with the choice and the push of these new students who were had different kinds of expectations of their school uh, so it's happened before just in a different scenario I love that parallel there's an activity I do at workshops where I ask people to think of their deepest learning experience and then to talk about the uh, what it was and the conditions that led to it and it almost always comes back a significant percentage of those experiences come back to relationships Charlie tell us a little bit about students expectations for relationships <clears throat> well let me let me come at it from a few different points of view and 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 we've done uh, as the book has come out and we've had more conversations we're beginning to see multiple dimensions of each of these ten student expectations and I'll, I'll illustrate that with a few comments about relationships uh, the one that is most obvious and the one that is most prominent in, in the book is that students are saying will will my teachers really try to know who I am will they build a relationship with me uh, so that they know who I am and that comes back to uh, or goes back to Elliot's comment about will they know my interests and so on but we, we're seeing a couple of other dimensions of that and, and one if you turn a little bit uh, it's the students could be asking the school will you help me to form relationships outside of school with adults who are doing work I think I want to do uh, later on 
So, so, so that's another dimension of this uh, that I think is important. It is, and that is, how are we using each of those ten expectations, and in this case, relationships, as a possible learning opportunity for students, not just an expectation of the schools for a relationship student to teacher, but help me form relationships outside of school. Right? So it has those dual dimensions. Well, it seems like we are talking much more about the social aspects of learning, and I, and I feel that's really positive. So we have a 15-year-old daughter. She's our last child at home. And after I interviewed um, Dennis and talked to her about it, she's just really been focused on this idea of internships. Intriguingly, the aspect that she likes the most is, well, if I do an internship and I don't like something, I can just move on. It feels like that's sort of a significant part right, of our discovering interests is that we work on something and then we move on. Um, Elliot, do you want to talk a little bit about relevance and, um, and, and how that sort of plays into to what you think should happen? Right. Okay. Well, so this has to do, it's hard to talk about just one. I'll just, that's just a preface. So there's always the other combinations of the expectations uh, seeping in. Uh, so when, when a student has something that's uh, engaging or relevant to them, uh, the timing has to be right. And, if, and let's, say, let's say it's they're going working at an, an animal shelter or they're learning how to be a fireman, or they're learning how to be an engineer, or they're learning how to be an architect, and then they switch. And, but that, that kind of learning is going deep and then going broad. So the question to ask students is, what, what made you change? What connections did you make as you were doing these other things in your life that, that made you switch in an internship type of experience. So this is as you go deep, you go broad. What we're running in schools, and we don't have to do this all the time, but you, we could be the 3M company and say you're going to explore the things that you want to explore 20% of the time, and we're going to give you credit for it. And it could be a variety of different experiences. But that goes in alignment with a, a scope and sequence, but you're now, and you're now also going deep to go broad. You're making connections. It's the other way. For some reason, there hasn't been much time in school to do that. That's the road to mastery. Masters go deep. They get immersed. They practice real long and hard. And then they get connected to other things that they have to figure out and they may go into another arena, stay on that interest. That's the part that we're missing in schools. And somehow we have to regain that or, or add it if, if we completely missed it. I don't think we really completely missed it you know, in, in different eras of American public education and education around the world. It's just got to be re-upped as real and significant. So what your daughter is experiencing is right. She's going deep and going broad. There's very little time to do that in a scope and sequence bubble test measurement uh, system. 
It has to allow for all. I'm going to pick on my daughter a little bit more. She also <laughs> loves this uh, dystopian teen fiction. We read together these books. And um, it, it occurs to me, and we've talked about this on the show before, that a lot of that fiction shows youth or teenagers in roles, in significant roles, making adult-like decisions. And I've wondered if that's sort of the appeal. Charles, does that ring any bells with you? Oh, yes, yes, quite a few. I, I think one of the things we try to emphasize and provide examples of is how many times even very famous learners uh, who've, who've achieved uh, considerable have found an adult early on in their life who uh, provided them with challenges, uh, who, who showed them what it was to do highly uh, exemplary work. Uh, and uh, that, I think, is what students don't see enough of uh, in school. And it's where if school could embrace the outside uh, more directly and positively, uh, they would provide students with opportunities to see, as we say in the book, what it means to do something really well. Uh, we, we talk a lot about, as Elliot said, mastery, but, but very little of school is, is really concerned with mastery. It's much more concerned with getting by. Uh, and students learn something about learning in many high schools that is really contrary to what's going to be valuable uh, for them later on. Uh, so by getting them out, again, going back to the internships, uh, it allows them to uh, try out various things to bump up against adults who can tell them things that many times their teachers will not tell them uh, about the work uh, and about their role in that work uh, outside of school. Uh, and this is not uh, this is not restricted to uh, what we might consider to be vocational education. We're talking about all students here. We're, we're talking about young people who would want to be do doctors and lawyers uh, and architects, uh, as well as we're talking about. Uh, people who have a see themselves with a future in the trades. I want to make sure that we have time to talk about the leaving part. So I'm going to kind of move on from the the ten expectations. But I, again, I love the book as a whole. But this section to me felt like it was such a valuable way to be thinking, both as parents, as teachers, uh, as homeschool communities, and any kind of a learning community to be thinking about. Uh, what students would want and expect and need in their learning. Before we move on, did either of you want to make kind of a final comment on those expectations? Um, Charlie, you want to talk about the imperatives and how we've, we moved it? Yeah. Well, well, we're actually, I'll just make, make that one comment, I guess, as a wrap. Uh, we're starting to develop rubrics uh, that faculties can use, uh, so they can use the expectations to really do some self-assessment of the learning opportunities they are providing for young people. So in the book, for example, we suggest that young people could use it as a kind of an assessment of their schools, but we're also beginning to think about how faculty members can come together 
and use those expectations as design imperatives, if we call them in the book, design requirements, and think about how they can bring more choice, for example, how bring more authenticity, more challenge into it. So uh, we're trying to see it as a tool faculty members can use, uh, and I think that's, that's part of our future work. Again, I'm on a slow connection here, and I may be delayed. I apologize for that. But uh, I love that piece. You actually say in the book that you were hoping that social entrepreneurs would use these as design requirements, and that really struck a chord with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we think it's already happening. We think it's already happening. Uh, we think a lot of the online learning uh, is essentially saying to young people, we can give you learning the way you'd like it, uh, any time, any place, at any level, from anyone, uh, almost any content you want. So we think that people, the expectations are out there. Uh, we tried to make them explicit, and we really believe schools can embrace them. Uh, we're very much school people, and we've invested quite a bit of our time in trying to help the public school system uh, embrace alternatives, and we think this is one way to do that. So again, I, if I'm talking over everybody, I apologize, but I'm trying to jump right in because of the delay in my connection. Um, there's a story you tell in, as we're moving forward here, about how students disengage and it's Roger Martin's mom who writes a note about Roger's brother, Terry, that says, you know, Terry was not at school yesterday. Um, and, and we sort of called to the carpet, no, you need to give us a, a response. And, and Roger's mom saying, well, you know, let me see. No, just a note is required. I think what I loved about that particular story was uh, that it also kind of represents an attitude, sort of a willingness to say, this is, this is, uh, and important for my child, or this is important for me as a learner. So I'm not going to be argumentative, but I'm just going to say, I, you know, I'm going to use the system for my benefit. Do you, do either of you want to talk about uh, the disengagement piece and how students disengage, and maybe the pattern there? Yeah, yeah. I I I want to make a comment about what you just said too. What we're talking about in terms of in in, in relation to disengagement is, uh, and what you just mentioned is agency. Um, that student that created and developed, had an action that was uh, thoughtful and, and decisive about whether or not they were learning in school. And the mom actually acted as a fiduciary, meaning she was saying, what's best for my child here? What's best in this situation? That's what a fiduciary does with an agent. It puts themselves, puts their their agent ahead of themselves. So she may have had conflicts with, of course, her child leaving school, but she knew that that was what was best 
for him and because he was in fact learning and that she was going to stay with him and make sure about that and so that that's a very powerful um, piece that you just brought up in terms of this engagement it was Ralph Kaplan who started off our quote who's a friend of ours who uh, was a critic for the New Yorker around design for decades was uh, mentored by Ray and Charles Eames and he said when we met him one day around the book he said look Elliot uh, just because you leave school doesn't mean that your education is necessarily interrupted so there's all kinds of things that happen when students disengage in school and they can disengage in school and be compliant be there and uh, like in the case of uh, Harry when, uh, I think it was Harry Lewis spoke about Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates they were there and they were not there they could they could take it all in and be somewhere else and then eventually um, they went somewhere else uh, what if what if the school could have provided what they needed and did both which we think is possible so this engagement takes many forms um, when it's when it when there's disengagement because of family issues and, and some of the other big four pieces that those are times when there has to be interventions what we're talking about is creating a system that's not treatment but prevention and that's a whole different way of looking at education and health care so if you take care of your body there's less intervention you watch what you're eating if you exercise if you get good sleep you know kind of simple once again common sense things to do it doesn't mean that you're not going to get ill or something's not going to happen to you but you're 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 preventing you have very good habits and you're following through on them so that's going to present prevent this engagement we don't have a system like that right now our system is an intervention system and the interventions are sometimes unfortunately minimal because there's not the funding there to have the appropriate interventions but we allowed the person to get sick if you will and that could be emotionally physically or you know just socially disengaged and so so there's there are pieces and ways to do the system differently is really what I'm getting at and that is in a prevention mode I love the way you kind of flip the competence argument which is what I hear you saying is that it's not that we shouldn't be looking for competence in students but that we're so narrowly focused on low levels of competence when we should be thinking about higher levels of competence mastery craftsmanship and artistry um, that feels like it's a a compelling way to introduce people to the topic do you find people respond Charlie to, to that way of describing the current situation and especially common core maybe Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm really not sure. As I talk, uh, as I talk to educators 
there's a bit of frustration uh, in, and I think what we're asking them to do when we say move beyond competence or bring learners to the edge of their competence, if you will, as we use that phrase. Uh, and it could be because although the Common Core and some of the new tests, uh, which are uh, more demanding, uh, still still don't really capture that notion of moving beyond competence. Uh, we passed the test. Uh, let us move on. Uh, the old joke of taking the quiz on Friday and then moving on on Monday and forgetting all about that. Or, or I recall Ted Sizer's comment about uh, asking that we give the final exam one year after the course is over uh, so that we could really assess what young people learned. All of those, in a sense, bring to mind that in school, students do not see a lot of learning and work that exhibits mastery, uh, true mastery, uh, that even forget about artistry uh, at, the, at the ultimate end. Uh, and that's why I think schools, if they embraced learning outside of schools, uh, students would have more opportunities to see true artistry, uh, true mastery from people in all lines of work, uh, all lines of work. For talking over you there again, it's my connection. So we have another daughter who took a gap year after high school, decided to spend uh, a year and went and worked for a humanitarian program in Nepal. We had a surprising response, not entirely a positive one from our peers with, with her doing that, sort of stopping out of the system. Um, but a gap year is one of many ways in which someone could leave to learn. Elliot, do you want to talk about some of the things that you learned from big picture learning about the different ways in which we could we can be encouraging students to leave to learn? Yeah, um, I, I'd, I'd, I'd like to preface it with uh, a little piece that we had in the book and that remind, your story about uh, your daughter reminded me of. And that in, in the book we talked about the five, what I'm calling the five P's, that students should have uh, learning plans, plans, protocols, people, places, and a portfolio. Um, as they leave to learn, that you're, you know, you're not just going off willy-nilly. That there's adults around you, organizations around you. Um, you have long-term and short-term goals. Uh, every there's some type of adult fiduciary, making sure that personally you're you're really good. You're in a good place all the time, somebody you can go to. And so those pieces, those five Ps are put in place uh, for a, a leaving experience that, in leaving in quotes, you're still connected. It's like you never left, but you're somewhere else. Uh, that you're getting credit for what you're doing. Uh, and that it counts is a is a is a big big deal um, for us as as a part of the book and a part of the change of the system. Um, yep, people go off at gap years, but it's like that doesn't really count. Uh, and we want to try to say, wait a second, with the right 
pieces in place and the right people in place, the right protocols, that those experiences really can count at the at the level of the institution and, and should. Um, if you want them to, of course, and, and we really feel that people do want them to and they're in, incredibly valuable. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there with that one. I, I think I put it in a, uh, put it some perspective around that uh, question. Again, I'm delayed, so I hope, hope I'm not talking over anybody. Um, that's a kind of a dramatic example, right? That's a that's a real departure. But you're not necessarily meaning that you have to really leave. You have descriptions of uh, residents and ex experts and residents. You have road trips. You have after school programs, community service. Uh, the leaving doesn't have to actually be the sort of dramatic leaving, right? Right. It's a, it's a, like I said a minute or so ago. It's in quotes. In order to stay in school to learn, you have to sometimes leave to get those experiences that bring you back, that you can connect, draw metaphors, make you know, make adult connections, make object connections, make place connections. These are big, big deals around your growth and your self-concept and your academics. Mm -hmm. Charlie, I want to ask you a question here. There's a a um, quote in the book or a mention of Charles Ledbetter's uh, description of scaling as either formulaic replication, which would be McDonald's, or proliferation, which would be Chinese restaurants. Is there a third model? Is there a model that more mirrors the experiences you've been describing for students that provides the same kind of support and agency for learning organizations? Hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> that's uh, that's an interesting way to to come at it. Yeah, in in a way, we were hoping that uh, this book kind of makes the it's a making the case book. It's kind of trying to get people to see uh, a point of view about schools that looks different. Uh, so in some respects, we were hoping and, and are still hoping that the expectations in a way go viral. Uh, you know, we, we had this image of, of students uh, taking these expectations and uh, kind of nailing them to the schoolhouse door, or, or at least nailing them to the school's website and saying, you know, the, we need these things. We need these things if you want us to stick around and be really engaged uh, deeply in, in, in great learning. Uh, and so, it's a different kind. Uh, it's a kind of organic spread that comes from young people demanding more. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, are we more ready for this now? Uh, are schools more ready to say we should be looking at our customer, the student, and seeing uh, what needs that customer has for the tremendous resources we have? So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely not a scaling through a cookie cutter approach. Uh, it, it, it has a little of the uh, Chinese restaurant, uh, if you will, in it. Uh, but we were also looking at a movement, if you would, that might be generated by students uh, being having much stronger voice uh, and maybe a more articulate voice about what they wanted from their schools. 
so that's a fascinating description. Uh, um, you know, ideas spread, it seems to me, not because they're necessarily inherently valuable or moral or good, but oftentimes just because they're good at spreading, because <laughs> the ideas are spreadable, <laughs> which means that sometimes uh, ideas spread because they maybe aren't as deep or as thoughtful. Um, aside from students sort of giving voice here, are there other ways that caring adults you think can make a difference? And, and again, either of you can chime in here. Maybe this is our final question. Well, um, kind of the millions of years of evolution tells us that they do make a difference. Um, but this is how we learn. Um, if you want to learn something, you're either going to go back to school for it and get text-based and, and meet a person, or you're going to go outside of school, meet a person, get hands-on experience, you're going to go to the library and read about it, and then you're going to go back and forth and back and forth, and then you're going to do some trial and error. So we we really know how to we really know how to do these things without almost anybody telling us. It's the certification that that we need um, that the institution uh, really really gives us. So we do have those people in our lives. What we're trying to do is bring that outside piece of working with your hands and making making mistakes and learning by doing and meeting people on the outside and the texts that you're reading on the outside and the organizations that you belong to on the outside to count back into the school so it's not just based on sitting in a seat or delivering a certain content. When the field is much wider and the ways to learn it are, are so much broader at the same time and deeper at the same time. I really love that. Uh, Charlie, any final thoughts? No, I, I think I'll, I'd like to end it with Elliot's last comments. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm so sorry that my connection's been so slow. It was nice and strong before we started, and then it weakened. And I hope it didn't. It wasn't too distracting. Um, again, the book is "Leaving to Learn" by Elliot Washer and Charles Charlie Majowski. I hope I said that right. Uh, thank you both. What a, what a, what a terrific book! What a, what a great experience for me to have read it. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, thank you both for being here. It was great to be here. Thank you. You. Yeah. Okay, Thank you, buddy. I know. Uh, like the uh, webinar. It's great for us. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Elliot and Charlie. The way this works, you have to leave the room for the recording to process. I'll try and get it up later today. I'm actually in early morning India time, but we'll, we'll get it up soon. Take care, everybody. Bye now. Bye-bye. <laughs>